Second Samuel chapter 6. And the title of our message is The Touch of Death. Touch of Death. As we continue our sermon series on the life of David. Second Samuel chapter 6. Page 355 in my Bible. Right next to 1 Samuel if you need some help. 1 Samuel, uh, excuse me, 2 Samuel chapter 6. We begin reading with verse 1. Again, David gathered together all the chosen men of Israel, and they numbered about 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people that were with him from Bahal of Judah to bring up from hence the ark of God, whose name is called by the name of the Lord of hosts that dwelleth between the cherubim. And they set the ark of God upon a new cart, and they commissioned the sons of Abinab to drive the new cart. The sons' names were Aho and Uzzah. Verse 5, And David and all the house of Israel played before the Lord all manner of instruments made of fir wood, even harps and psalteries and timbrels and coronets and cymbals. And when they came to Nachon's threshing floor, Uzzah put forth his hand to the ark of God, and he touched it, and the oxen shook. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against him, and God smote him dead for his mistake, and he died by the ark of God. Verse 8, And David was displeased because the Lord had made a breach upon Uzzah. And verse 9, And David was afraid of the Lord that day. We have three stories tonight. We have a plain story. We have a profound story. And yes, we have a personal story. Let's begin with the plain story. Just the simple facts of the case. The Ark of the Covenant is a chest that in David's day housed the presence of God. The Ark of the Covenant was a chest, much like that is a chest. And inside that chest was the presence of the living God. In David's day, God lived in a box. In Solomon's day, he would move to a building. At Pentecost, he would move to a body. He now lives inside of his people. His people's body has now become his temple. For over 100 years, this ark has been stored away. It's been gathering dusk in a sleepy little town about eight and a half miles from Jerusalem. David desires to move the ark of the covenant that contains the Lord. He desires to move it from where it has been, as I said, for 100 years, back to Jerusalem to put it in a place of honor and a place of prominence. A new cart is found, and the ark is placed on the new cart. Two brothers are commissioned to move the ark. One is to guide the oxen 
in the direction they're supposed to go, and the other brother is to follow on the side of the uh, uh, cart and keep the ark from falling off, keep it steady, if you will. While all of this is taking place, David is having a celebration, a party, and thousands of people are singing and dancing in the streets. And then a tragedy occurs. The cart hits a hole, and the ark begins to slide a little bit off the cart. Uzzah, the brother assigned to steady the ark, reaches up with his hand and he touches the ark to keep it from sliding, perhaps even falling off. And that touch of his hand on that ark angers God. And God strikes him dead. When David hears about it, David himself is puzzled. And then he becomes angry at God. And David orders the ark to be put on hold. Just leave it alone. And it's on hold for another three months while David and his advisors try to figure out what in the world happened. Now that's the plain story. Pretty simple to understand. Now let's move to the profound story. God had given very clear instructions in the law how the Ark of the Covenant was to be moved from one location to another. Very specific directions how the box that held himself was to be moved from one place to another. The Ark was to be moved on two long poles that were covered with gold. The poles were to be inserted into little round rings that were on each corner of the chest. One pole would go through one side, through two rings. The other pole would go through the other side, those two rings that were there. Men from the tribe of Levi, only the tribe of Levi, there were 12 tribes, only the tribe of Levi, and only a certain family in that tribe of Levi had permission from God to insert the poles into the ark. And those men then would pick up the ark with the poles and place the pole on their shoulder. And so four men carrying the poles that held the ark were the only ones who were allowed to move it. There were no exceptions, no exemptions, and no exclusions. This is what God said. When you move the Ark of the Covenant, this is how it is to be moved. For whatever reason, David chose, his advisors chose, to disregard what God said. They disobeyed God. Now, I guess the question you might be asking, and I certainly ask to myself, why would David disregard what God said? Why would David blatantly disobey what God had said in his word? Well, there is some different answers, I suppose. Maybe one, he was ignorant. Maybe David 
didn't read his Bible like he should have. Maybe his counselors didn't read the Bible like they should have. And maybe in not reading the Word of God, they didn't know the way of God in regard to the Ark of the Covenant. So maybe it was just a case of ignorance. They didn't know the Word of God on this specific matter. Ignorance is not a bliss, though, when it comes to spiritual things. Maybe David got to thinking, we've got to go eight and a half miles. This is a, this is a lot of time to cover eight and a half miles on foot. That's a lot to ask of somebody. It would be much easier and it would be much faster if we just put the ark on a cart. A new cart. And toted it there on the cart rather than on the shoulders of men. Maybe David got to thinking it would be easier to do it his way. Faster to do it his way. After all, I'm taking it to Jerusalem. After all, I'm going to honor it. It's not been honored in a hundred years. I'm going to honor it. I'm going to put it in a place of prominence and preeminence. Certainly God would understand. If I want to cut a corner here or there to expedite the matter, to make it easier. Maybe David watched the Philistines, how they did it. You see, the Philistines had the Ark of the Covenant at one time. They had captured it, and God cursed them for it. And so the Philistines sent the Ark of the Covenant back to Israel. They put it on a cart. And just sent it back to Israel. They said, we don't want it no more. Well, maybe David said, well, the Philistines did it that way. <laughs> maybe I can too. Maybe God's forgot what he said. Or changed his mind about what he said. I don't know why David disregarded what God said. I don't know why David disobeyed God. But the fact of the matter is, he did. And that moves us now to, I guess, where the rubber meets the road. The personal story. The plain story is pretty simple to understand. The profound story is still pretty simple to understand. But what's the personal story? What does this story say to you and me? Whenever you study the Bible, you always ask yourself, what was going on then? What did it mean then? What does it mean now? And what does it mean to me? Three things, I think, jump out as we look at these verses. The first one is this. God's worship and God's work must be done God's way. God's worship God's work must be done God's way. In 1 Chronicles 15, verse 13, we get a little bit more insight as David and his advisors are talking about this incident. And this is what the verse says, 1 Chronicles 15, verse 13. But because you did not do it the first time, the Lord our God broke out against us because we did not consult him. We didn't consult him about the proper order of moving this ark. 
So David has a meeting after all this occurs. He gets all the big shots, the high-ranking muckety-mucks. And he says, gentlemen, can you tell me what happened? And after they think through it a little bit, they come to the conclusion that maybe we should have talked to God a little bit about this before we just jumped off and did it. If David had read his Bible, if he had consulted the priests and the prophets that were there with him, if he in fact had just prayed to God and sought God's wisdom and counsel on this matter, none of this would have happened. But David didn't. He's a king. He's a monarch. He's a lord. He's a sovereign. He's been blessed by God. Certainly God understands what he's trying to do. He's trying to restore the Ark of Covenant to a place where it'll be respected and reverenced. A place of prominence and preeminence, as I've said already. A place where it will be honored. Certainly God wants it to be done fast and easy and cheaply. And David says, well, I'm just going to take it upon myself just to move it. And he gives the order. He meant well. I want you to understand this. David meant well. He wanted to do something that was right, but he chose to do it the wrong way. Frank Sinatra sang, David did it his way. And whenever we try to do things in regard to worship and work for God our way, and we disregard the scriptures, we're getting in dangerous waters. Whether we be kings or whether we be peasants, whether you be a pastor or you be a lay leader or you just be a worshiper, God has told us what he expects of us in the areas of worship and work. And we would be wise to listen to what he has to say. Lest we have a disaster. You know what a Piper Cub and a 747 have in common once they get in the air? A little pipsqueak plane holds maybe two people. Skinny people. <laughs> and the big 747 that can hold hundreds of people of all sizes and shapes. Well, once that little plane gets in the air, once that big plane gets in the air, you know what they have in common? They both have to listen to the tower. They're being directed by men in the tower who know what altitude they need to be, that knows what direction they need to come in on they're being directed from the tower because the tower knows best and ladies and gentlemen our tower is the Lord God his word and we would be a very wise people and even a wiser church if we would consult the tower before we run off and do things in regard to his worship and his work because God's worship and work must be done his way or he will not bless it no matter what our intent and motive may be secondly I see something else of a personal truth for us 
God's worship and God's work must be for God's glory. God's worship and God's work must be for His glory. Not only done His way, but for His glory. I want you to notice, if you would, at verse 5. David and his 30,000, the house of Israel, played before the Lord all manner of instruments made of wood, harps, and psalteries, and timbrels, and coronets, and cymbals. David brought out the entire orchestra. It was a celebration of celebrations. This is a big deal, ladies and gentlemen. Thousands upon thousands of people are participating. Hundreds of thousands of dollars are being spent. It's being promoted. David is bringing back the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. Strike up the band. Let the dancing begin. We're going to praise God. And then it says in verse 8, when God reigned on his parade, David got very angry. Angry at the Lord. Why would he do that? Because I wonder if the celebration that took place that day, listen to me carefully, wasn't about David's glory, not God's. I wonder if David somehow got caught up and became a little prideful. I'm moving the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. I am doing that. I want a parade. I want an orchestra. I want a band. I want the dancers. I want the dignitaries. I want the speeches. This is a big deal for my resume. But don't get me wrong, David loved God. Don't get me wrong, David wanted to please the Lord. But maybe this was more about David's show than God's. Maybe David was more concerned about his name on the banner than God's. You know, when we start putting on a show for ourselves, I can promise you two things. God will not be happy and God will not be there. God comes to a place that is holy. God comes to a place that's filled with obedience. And Israel wasn't being holy. And they certainly weren't being obedient. I wonder how much worship in today's church is really about God. Are you listening to me? I wonder how much is really about the person doing the worship. 
I hope people look at me when I stand up. If they don't, I'll give them something to look at. I wonder if people can hear me sing. If they can't, I'm going to sing extra loud so I'll be heard. I hope people know how much I love the Lord. If they don't, when I run around the church three times, they'll know. Or fall on the floor, they'll know. Or jump six pews, they'll know. Or holler and scream from the pulpit for two hours, they'll know. I wonder how much worship is done in the flesh. Because it's about us. Oh, oh, we want him to get the glory, but if he doesn't get any glory, that's okay with us, because we'll get it. I wonder today how much worship is really about his glory, not our own. How much worship's really done driven by the Spirit of God versus driven by the flesh? How much of our doctrines really come from the Bible anymore? May I suggest maybe they come from Disneyland. How much of our hype today is Hollywood hype? How much of our music is nothing but rock and roll with Jesus' name put on it? How much of our messages today is nothing but Dr. Phil clothed in clerical garments? I wonder what we call success anymore. Is it just drawing a bunch of people and having a big bank account with a lot of buildings and our names on billboards all over town? Is that success? What's our techniques? Are they biblical techniques or do they come from Madison Avenue or corporate America? How much do we do where we just put the name of Jesus on it but we don't care if he gets any glory? God's worship and God's work to be acceptable to Him must be for His glory and His glory alone. God's worship and God's work, it must be done God's way. And then lastly, one other truth. If we're not careful... God can become commonplace to us. Commonplace. Familiarity can breed contempt. Where has the Ark of the Covenant been for 100 years? The, the box that contains the presence of the living God? It's been stuck in a town. It's been stuck specifically in the house of a man who is storing it away. It's been in a dark corner. It's dirty. It's dusty. It's been ignored for 100 years. That says something about the nation of Israel, doesn't it? 
It says something about the religious system of that day. It says something about the people of that day. How God could just be taken away for a hundred years in the sense of the Ark of the Covenant. And nobody seemed to care. Until David came along and said, we need to get it back. What's that say for America? Where's God? What's that say for churches today? Where's God? What's that say for homes today? Where's God? What's it say for you and I? Where's God? Have we taken God and stuck Him away in some storage room? Is the dust and the dirt all over Him? Do we tell stories about what He used to be, not what He is now? Or do we even tell stories about Him at all? Has God become so commonplace that we just don't care? Has He? A no big deal, God. When God becomes little, man's sins become big. How can people say they love the Lord and drink alcohol? Because God's no big deal. How can people say they love the Lord and smoke pot? Pastor, it is legal in some places. You do know that. I know that. But legality doesn't make it right. Better said, righteous. How can people say they love the Lord and use profanity and vulgarity? How can people say they love the Lord and dress shamelessly, immodestly, leaving nothing to the imagination? How can people say they love the Lord and live in immorality? and practice fornication, and live together outside the covenant of marriage? How can people say they love the Lord and lie and cheat and steal at every opportunity they can? How can people say they love the Lord and, and watch pornography? How can people say they love the Lord and live like the devil? Because the Lord is no big deal. They treat him casually and as a commonplace thing. Because he's really not a big deal. He's just a relic from the past that lives over there in the back room. Do not disturb. He's irrelevant. This story has a little bite to it, don't it? Because it's not just a plain story and a profound story. It's an intensely personal story to you and to me and to this church. And I want everyone to listen. If we're going to do God's worship and God's work, we better do it His way. 
And if we're going to do God's worship and God's work, we better make sure he gets the glory. We really better make sure he gets the glory. And we need to restore the wonder and the awe and the reverence of God back in our life, in our church. He's not going to compromise who he is for us. He's not going to change who he is for us. But Lord, if you allow us to do something different, though it goes against who you are and what you say, we'll have thousands of people here. He doesn't care. He's not looking for a crowd. He's looking for worshipers who will obey him. Pastor, if we would just be a little bit lax in some of these moral requirements, we could have more people here of a higher caliber who could give more money. I would rather have no money in the blessings of God than have $10 million without God. God help us learn from this story. Lest God strike us dead, not physically, but spiritually. You and I in this church and this ministry cease to be. I need your help making sure things are done His way. I need your help to make sure that He's getting the glory. And I need your help to make sure that he never becomes a casual, commonplace little God here. Will you help me? I'll help you. If each one of us will do those things we know to do, then it will all take place collectively as well. God help us. Heavenly Father, forgive us when we do things our way. We've been guilty of that. Hasn't had a good outcome. Lord, forgive us. Cleanse us. Make us whole. And teach us your ways that we may be able to walk in them whatever we do. And Lord, may we make sure that you receive the glory. Pride is a deceitful thing. And we're so clever in how we try to cover our pride as we try to exercise our pride. Forgive us, Lord, for superseding you and using your name to cover our tracks. And Lord, forgive us for losing the wonder, for losing the awe, for making you little Jesus and not respecting you for who you are. 
and making you that way in our life. Father, forgive us as a church, forgive us as individuals. May history not repeat itself at Miles Road in the story we just read. In Jesus' name we pray. Lord, we're about to go into a fellowship. We thank you for the dear people who have prepared what we're going to enjoy. We ask that you would bless our fellowship, our conversation, our getting to know one another in a deeper, richer way. Lord, I just pray that you'll just bless all that takes place over there. Thank you for allowing us to come together tonight. In Jesus' name.